the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, where you receive your PhD in the economics, technology, history, philosophy, and everything else about Bitcoin, all for the low, low price of free. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Now, since we have had a ton of new listeners, and this will probably be the episode I'm going to air on the finance podcast week, um, uh, so and we've had a lot of new listeners to the show and continually seem to have a lot of fresh ears around the Bitcoin ecosystem in general, so I wanted to take a guy's take, take an episode here to go back to the basics for a minute and kind of cover some of the broad strokes of what Bitcoin even is, which I'm not 100% sure if I've really directly done this outside of the context of some of the many hundreds and hundreds of articles we've covered. Um, so this guy's take is going to break down what Bitcoin is because it's not what you think. So what is Bitcoin if it's not what you think it is? Bitcoin is money. <gasps> what? I know, shocker. Usually this is profoundly misunderstood. This is almost invariably, this is met immediately with a criticism that goes something like, well, but money is a medium of exchange and unit of account. Bitcoin is never used as a medium of exchange, which isn't actually true, but typically it's not known by most people or just ignored. And of course, it's way too volatile to be a unit of account. And its market is so small that nobody prices things in Bitcoin anyway. So it's a terrible money and therefore it can never work. Now, this is a concept of money that's largely self-referential, maybe. A better way of saying it may be that it only works in hindsight, right? It has zero analytical or predictive power to it. It only works to explain something that is already the dominant money, but it doesn't tell us anything about money prior to it becoming one. All monies emerge. They start out as just a, a good in the market, and then they become a money. In fact, most monies developed over centuries. That definition of money, that it's the unit of account and medium of exchange, tells us nothing about monetary history. Uh, and in fact, we uh, read Alan Farrington's amazing piece, Wittgenstein's Money, which is actually W-I-T-T-Gensteins. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wittgenstein's Money, talking about this very concept, he refers to it as the semantic definition of money. And maybe as an analogy to explain what I mean here is that saying money is merely a unit of account and a medium of exchange is like saying the game of football is best played by the team who won it. But it doesn't tell us anything about the game. It doesn't tell us anything about what you know strategies or reasons why one team would be better than another. And it tells us nothing interesting about how football even works. All it tells us is the result. When the really interesting question is how is the game played? What are the attributes that make one team better than another? What are the strategies that would make one the inevitable winner and why? That's the interesting definition of money. The definition that says, oh, it's a medium of exchange and unit of account will only tell, ever tell us what a money is after it becomes money. Again, I'll just uh, link to Alan Farrington's piece on Wittgenstein's money, which does a fantastic job of breaking down this concept a little bit deeper. Um, and uh, highly recommend. And of course, it's audible here on Bitcoin Audible. But think about why this is kind of a useless definition, right? It doesn't give us any way to judge two competing monies against each other. It presupposes that money can't even change, that there's no growth or emergence period in it at all. It just is a money. 
because whatever is the medium of exchange and unit of account, that's the money. So therefore, only something that has already succeeded as money can be money. So it just doesn't give us anything. It can't explain why something becomes a medium of exchange or unit of account while it's still not one. It can't tell us why one thing would work better than another. It couldn't explain why one would fail after centuries of being the dominant money. And it suggests that the entirety of the rich, vibrant, and incredibly changing and clashing monetary history for thousands of years couldn't even happen. Because the only thing that can be called money is the thing that already became money. So for our purposes, we are dropping that definition because it doesn't help us. An analogous context there is that we would only be able to say the internet was valuable or going to be useful after the entire world adopted the internet. Yet, when there are only two people on the internet at its birth, it would suggest that the internet could never be worth anything and it was never going to work as a communication tool because only two people are using it. So, what are the attributes that we would be able to see while the internet was still just two people? That would explain why the internet was a revolutionary technology. And even though the AT&T phone network had billions, potentially, of users all around the world, it was clear, even when there were only two people, that the internet was going to make it obsolete. That is the framework that we need for Bitcoin. We need to understand what money is at that level so that we can understand why it's so much superior to all of the monies today. And that's the argument I will make. Unfortunately, this is not something that I think can be easily covered in one episode, but I'm going to do my best. And I think the most important place to start and the most important thing to understand is that money arises in a market. It emerges naturally. There are only a handful of times in which governments have dictated a monetary good, and this has largely been in the effort to control or co-opt a different monetary good that had already emerged. This is the most important thing to understand is that money is natural, natural and foundational, but it arises in a market as the most marketable good. It has historically been the thing that was most widely desired by market participants. And as long as it has a handful of other attributes that reinforce this and make it useful in the context of money, in the context of trade and storing value over time, then the, the fact that it is the most desired good makes it more desirable in its own right. So it becomes a circular value that because it's desirable and it has a set of very critical monetary attributes that are terribly, terribly difficult to come by, that it then becomes more valuable because it can be traded with others. Because you can own it, you can, you can accept it in trade simply because you know someone else will want it. This is what's referred to in the context of value as a monetary premium. It is the value that has nothing to do at all with it actually being used. So cattle was money, has been used for money and currency before. Real estate has been used for trade. Land has been used. But the value that it accrues above and beyond wanting to eat the cattle or live on the land or... Uh, the metal that could make swords or that could build electronic devices or whatever it is, all the value that is not the use value, the consumption value of that good, is that becomes the monetary value, the monetary premium. And this is simply because people, other people will want to hold it and have it so that they can store and trade merely the value that it has across time rather than uh, use it for its consumption purpose. And this is actually really kind of interesting when you look back through history because one of the most prominent historical monetary goods was salt. And in the context of storing and trading value, salt wasn't just a spice. It was actually one of the most potent tools 
for preserving food as we've ever had. And that's still, that's still to this day. You know, we've worked really hard to make tons of other artificial or chemical preservatives, but few do the job like good old salt. So the very tool that was so widely used to store food became a store of value as well because it was so desirable in the market. And salt is one of the oldest monies, actually. It predates recorded history. We actually have no clue when it was really first used for this purpose. It's all throughout the Bible and the earliest texts, religious texts, and any significant civilization. It's upwards of like 8,000 years ago when salt was first being used as a currency and was being held as this incredibly valuable and precious good. Cool story, some of you might know this, but this is actually where the word salary comes from, right? It's derived from a phrase in ancient Greece that literally referred to the salt rations that were paid to Roman soldiers, which was considered one of the most precious things that you could be paid in. And it's prominent all throughout. It's, like I said, it's throughout the Bible, many, many religions, the history of very disparate and unrelated cultures and civilizations, uh, phrases, the salt of the earth, that guy's not worth his salt. Uh, even though we think of it today as the stuff in the you know, little shaker that sits on the dining table, its roots are very deep still in our society and language. So after something develops a monetary premium, after it becomes a currency and a money, what role does it serve? Because looking backward in that way can actually help us explain or make sense of why one thing would work better as money than something else. And also why specifically in this example, salt would have been a really good currency. When a money begins to be used to store and trade value, it becomes a collective accounting tool. It's a way to account for value, production, trade, loss, profit, all of these things across people that are not doing their accounting together, but doing it individually while able to take in information from the rest of society about what production or task or goal they should actually be focused on. Those things that are most expensive those things that carry the largest monetary cost are those things that are most desirable and least achievable. And those things that carry incredibly low or almost no cost are the things that are incredibly easy to come by and or wildly abundant. So we don't need more people wasting time on those things. And as an accounting tool, salt works great because it's very value dense and it can be broken up into the tiniest of parts that can be recombined without any loss as to what the thing itself is back into a greater whole later. This is the same reason why monetary metals were so successful and eventually ended up eclipsing salt as the dominant monetary good throughout history. But one grain of salt is really small and one pound of salt is a pound of salt, right? I could have a pound of salt and you could have a pound of salt and it's not really much difference between my pound and your pound. Whereas a pound of chicken is not another pound of chicken. You could have a fresh and healthy chicken. I could have a rotten and sickly and pathetic chicken that didn't have any fat on it and was, you know, beaten and ugh. One car isn't equal to another car. Maybe I've got an old battered piece of shit with 200,000 miles on it and yours might be a brand new Ferrari. But when it comes down to it, in kind of a rough sense, Salt is salt, and in a much more perfect sense, gold is gold. Yeah, it doesn't matter where your pound or ounce or gram, uh, gram of gold is anywhere. You can melt it down and it's pure gold, regardless. This is referred to as fungibility. Every unit of it is the same as any other unit, and in a divisibility sense... It can be broken down into tiny parts and then recombined. Like, it doesn't matter if my gold bar was created from a thousand grams of gold. I can still just melt it down and make it into a gold bar. And it's the same. It's no different than a gold bar that was made from three big chunks that equal a kilogram. It's still a kilogram of gold. This is a combination of fungibility. All the units are the same. 
Each one is the same as any other. And divisibility. And believe it or not, there are not many goods that share this attribute. This is an incredibly difficult and rare thing to come across in a marketable good. And we know that all other things equal, monies that have this feature are superior and will win out against any alternative that has less viable of those two characteristics. Again, all, all things equal. There are other more important characteristics that can actually outweigh a difference in fungibility and divisibility uh, that we've also discovered, but we're going to ignore them for just a second. And we'll just say that the more fungible and divisible money be beats out a less fungible one if they are equal in every other way. But why? Because this is a critical part of it being a good accounting tool. If the points in your budget at the end of your budget weren't the same as the points at the beginning of your budget, what would, what would be the use of budgeting for your household? Money is a collective accounting tool that allows society to organize what and where and when we should do certain tasks. And that might sound boring. Quote unquote, collective accounting probably seems like something that's not that important. But I damn near could argue that it's more important than opposable thumbs. Case in point, monkeys have opposable thumbs, but they do not have a tool for collective accounting. Thus, they have small groups and no society. Money is why civilization exists. And this is not an exaggeration or some pontification on how awesome Bitcoin is or whatever. As human beings, we cannot scale our relationships past something referred to as Dunbar's number. This is the number of simultaneous relationships that the average person can properly account for in their head. So for every additional person, let's go back, you know, 10,000 years or something, every additional person to a tribe, it adds an, an order of magnitude more relationships to the group. Like, for instance, I'm a friend with Bob and Nancy. It's me, Bob, and Nancy. We're buddies. We have a group of three. But I don't just need to know my relationship with Bob and my relationship with Nancy. I also need to understand Bob and Nancy's relationship for us to get along. So when Chad joins the tribe, it doesn't add three relation or it doesn't add one relationship, me and Chad. It adds three new relationships. Bob and Chad, Nancy and Chad, me and Chad. We went from three relationships to six by adding a single person. So when there are a hundred people in our tribe, the number of separate connections in our network becomes massive, and they are always changing. You know, maybe Chad and Nancy were good friends last week, but then something happened and I don't know about it, and now they're mortal enemies. And suddenly all of the relationships of everybody in the group have to shift and react to this new friction. So the ability to have a single cohesive group breaks down without collective beliefs and collective trade. After getting past Dunbar's number, which is around 150 people, estimate it's an estimation and it kind of varies, but after 150, you stop feeling like you're part of a tribe that all has one goal and that you can get a sense of what you're doing and you start to feel like disparate groups. This is why huge corporations have such an incredibly hard time making it seem like people who are in some, you know, technician circle in some single town are actually part of the whole. And instead, they look at it as this big stupid corporation that doesn't care about them or anything. They feel disparate. They feel disconnected from it because they've gone too far past Dunbar's number. Inevitably, it breaks down into factions, into divisions, into regions, and they have to feel like they're competing with each other to some degree. They aren't that other region. We're our region. Technicians hate the stupid support callers and vice versa. This is where collective tools are crucial. This is where language, religion, and money come into play.
These are the glue that hold everything together. They are foundational coordination tools. When these tools become manipulated or corrupted, like when politics manipulates and destroys language, it can pit people against each other that might not even disagree. It obscures the true meaning of what each other what each other might be saying or what beliefs we actually hold. And when money becomes a tool of control or political privilege, when it's debased and printed arbitrarily to meet some subjective political vision, these things don't have short-term local consequences. These things poison cultures. These things destroy long-term investment across the society and ultimately make society break down. Civilization cannot be maintained without strong, stable language and reliable economic coordination. It's like editing the DNA of society. Like if we're talking about like an organism, it's like going in and screwing with the DNA to get some single unimportant attribute and then trying to deny or refuse to believe that there are second and third order effects of screwing with the DNA, which has caused the entire organism to get cancer all over or die because you just f with the fundamental process by which that organism creates, grows, and heals itself. So without these mechanisms reliably and sustainably providing their role to society, Dunbar's number, again, 150 people, is about the best humanity can do. And in my opinion, the most important of those three tools is money. Because from the context of shared value, from the ability to trade and organize economic production, which is the source of all prosperity, language and a collective belief system would actually naturally emerge. If there's a totem of value that disparate groups can operate with, you can trade across groups who speak different languages. You can certainly trade across groups that have separate religions and potentially even separate morals if the code of the monetary language, ownership, and property rights remain consistent across them. Money is more foundational than language and religion. Now, I'm sure some anthropologist or linguist would argue with me vehemently about this, but I stand by it. And my evidence is that gold was mythologized and held as something of the gods in essentially every great society of history, and that it was done before that society became great, not after. In other words, it wasn't a result of the society being great that they adopted uh, gold as money. It was a prerequisite. They adopted gold as money and then became a great society. And we'll actually get into that in a minute with an excellent thread on Twitter that I want to go over. So all of this is a roundabout way of saying money develops into a collective accounting tool and there are certain attributes of that tool that make it incredibly good for accounting. And one of those is the attributes that make it like a budget sheet. All the points are the same and you can break them down indefinitely into smaller and smaller units. But what exactly does this enable and why do I think civilization is, cannot survive without it? This literally creates the miracle of modern society, the specialization of labor and the limitless prosperity that arises from being able to efficiently coordinate billions and billions of people onto a single truth about what is or is not needed within society. Otherwise, without money, we would have to barter. We would all have to directly know what we would run into the Dunbar's number immediately, where I would have to know that Nancy specifically always wants shoes, or maybe she wants shoes right now, and maybe in a couple of days she's needing to repair something on her house, or Chad really likes fish, so if I want to trade with something that Chad has, I need to make sure that I catch and have some fish on hand, and I need shoes right now for Nancy, but if it's next week, I got to remember to get my shoes over to Bob, who needs shoes temporarily. But unfortunately, they're girly shoes, so I don't know. I don't know if he's going to want them. But I got to trade him for something, maybe some fish, so I can trade for Chad because Chad knows how to fix stuff on houses, which is what Nancy wants. You see how stupidly and impossibly complicated this can get with like four people. 
trying to orchestrate this across millions or billions of people is just a laughable impossibility. It just means that there's no economic coordination whatsoever. Money solves that problem and makes everyone across society, even those with different religions, different races who speak different languages and live under vastly different governments, allow them to speak the same language of value and specialize down into the most incredibly specific of tasks and become part of an economic whole. It's the difference between a billion people working separately and a billion people working together. What can any one of those people accomplish on their own versus what can a billion people accomplish working on the same thing toward the same goal? That is the difference in a society that has a money, has a reliable, sound money, and one that does not. And so many people take this for granted. So many people take this for granted. They do not realize what an absolute miracle it is of the specialization of labor, of the economic coordination that we are the beneficiaries of. You know, the average person probably goes into a grocery store with disgust and hating capitalism or whatever, if they even know what that word means. But the next time you do that, next time you go into a grocery store, just stop for a second and look around. Sometimes I go into a place and I'm just overwhelmed with how much went into making this possible. Stop and think what you are looking at. And in a historical context, how stupidly impossible it ever was that this thing even exists. There are literally tens of thousands. I think the average is like 50,000 items in the typical grocery store. And they come from every corner of the earth into one giant refrigerated box that you can drive to quickly from your house so you can walk around and pick what you want. From a historical standpoint, that is science fiction nonsense. Try to imagine the number of people. Look at one product and try to work through your head the entire production line, where it came from, and the number of people who collectively worked together to bring just that one item to the shelf in front of you before its expiration date, organized and in order by alphabetical or category or type of food from how many different locations? The farmers that grew the food that you harvest in South America this time of year, but in just a few months, it's still going to be in stock at your local grocery store, but they're going to be harvesting it in a completely different hemisphere or possibly halfway around the world from where it was today because the seasons change, or people who package the food, the people who design and build the compressors and the engines that keep the food cold, and the people who make the ink and the print that goes on the front of the can and the paper, the people who drive the trucks and organize the shipments so that they get to their destinations, the people who test and experiment and find new foods or lower cost methods to achieve the same quality or you know, change the way the compressor works or make some little, little turning gear or something just a slightly more efficient that saves a cost. And even though it's only 10 cent per refrigerator that's run, it gets put in a billion different refrigerators and saves collectively a hundred million dollars a year because somebody found one little thing to improve. And this trail literally doesn't stop. It is a massive never-ending circle and you can take branches indefinitely. And at some point, whatever it is that you do, you could go down all of the branches of probably every single product in the grocery store and figure out where it is that you had a hand in making that thing come about. That is made possible because of money. There's this brilliant piece we have read on the show called I Pencil by Leonard Reed. It is one of the most fascinating thought experiments in this context and it argues correctly that there is no person on earth who could make a simple number two pencil. If you have not heard it, I don't want to spoil it for you because it's a brilliant piece. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes. And actually, I'll link to another. Uh, this is a speech by Tom Woods. It was called uh, 
econo applying economics to American history. And it's a speech that I really love. And there's this story that he tells in this speech um, about uh, there was a day where he was on, he, he was like chaperone on some sort of field trip with his kids or something. And some, uh, I don't remember if it's his child, but somebody uh, had like an asthma attack. And it was like the middle of the night, it was like one o'clock in the morning or something. And he jumped in his car and ran out and went to like a, a corner pharmacy store uh, that was open 24-7. So he runs down the aisle and he finds the albuterol or whatever it is, the medicine that the kid needed to make sure that, you know, he was going to be okay and that he paused. He paused and he just stopped to himself. What a miracle it was that in the middle of the night, in this random place that he's never even been, and this kid has this disease that was incredibly difficult to fix, and somebody halfway around the world probably fixed it and then produced it on the other half of the world, and then it just happens to be a quick drive from where he was, lit up in the middle of the night, ready for him to come get it for a couple of bucks, which was the amount of time it would take him to work an hour's worth of work to pick this up, to run back and potentially, you know, in some context, save this kid's life. Obviously, it wasn't severe as that severe in this scenario, but still, it literally could have. And that how could we ever take that for granted? But that whole speech, that whole speech is just really good. Um, and that story always stuck with me because it was just fun. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So this is all possible because of money. Money is a totem of value. A universal coordination tool that works so broadly, we can coordinate even the most disparate and distant sources of production, talent, and the key, human time, which is what all production, talent, efficiency, waste, innovation, all of it comes back to human time. So our history lesson, again. The role of money ends up serving as a collective accounting tool where I can reliably say that I have produced this past value because I have the salt or the gold as evidence of it. And then we begin to see that money, despite most commonly emerging from a good on the market that was probably used for something else, I'm using that salt not to consume food or that gold, not as an electronics or, you know, metallic device itself or jewelry, whatever it is, I'm using it to store and translate value. I'm using it, using it as an authentication of the work I have done in the past. It is my claim on future resources that I am owed back from society because I have produced it and not yet consumed it. So think about this in the context of savings. If I have $10,000 in savings from my job, and what I do is I make sandwiches, and every single sandwich that I make, I have a dollar profit. Well, then if I have $10,000, it means that I have created 10,000 sandwiches positively into society. I have a net of 10,000 positive sandwiches into the world, into the economy, that I haven't taken back. All I am holding is a token that says I've done it in the past. I've added to the bucket of economic resources, and I have yet to take it out. The amount I have in savings is the net productive value that I have given to the rest of the world, provably. I have done it with skin in the game, and someone else put their value on the line to say, yes, I agree, this is what it's worth. My savings account is my contribution to society. And also note that as an authentication tool, it's informational. It's not a physical tool when used as money. The purpose of money is to translate the information of the value I created in the past and make it accessible to me in the future. This is why paper representations of money work, why collectibles were a historical money as well, despite seemingly having no other value. So it wasn't just gold and salt and cattle and 
uh, wampum. Well, actually, wampum's a great example. Like like seashell money and uh, a kula ring. The the kula ring, like kula beads and the African glass beads and these things that were actually collectibles, but they were really hard to create. As these things developed value and they became money, they ended up having value as the money themselves because they ended up being generational proof of the value that other people produced into society. So going back to the idea of salt and more specifically the monetary metals like gold, developing a monetary premium, quote unquote, well, a, a purely virtual form of money like paper fiat only has a monetary premium. It doesn't have a use base. It is all monetary premium which means that its value is entirely in its ability to authenticate what has happened in the past. But it can develop, nonetheless, after acquiring any value at all, a virtual monetary representation or a collectible or something, um, and have done so many times in the past. And it doesn't even matter what that original use was. I'd refer to one of the most essential works in Bitcoin. Um, on the nature and origins of money. It is called Shelling Out the Origins of Money by Nick Szabo, and it is so good, obviously, audible on this show. You can just look at it in the library at bitcoinaudible.com. I would listen to the reboot because I think that's my updated audio version of it. The really old version is kind of low quality, and I screw up some pronunciations and stuff. But I've listened to it myself numerous times, and honestly, it's probably about time for a refresh of that one. Honestly, it is so, so good. Um, so that one will be in the show notes as well. But money simply has to gain re- uh, value in the market for some reason, for its then monetary attributes to take the leading role in obtaining the monetary premium, in obtaining its value as a money And it doesn't, it literally doesn't even matter what. In fact, it can be circular uh, in that some people saw that this thing could have a monetary premium and if it developed one, it would be a very successful money. And so they bought it and assigned it a value initially under the assumption that one day it could be a money. So other than fungibility and divisibility, what might be those other aspects of money? What might be one of the most important aspects of a good money that could lead one to see that it might be superior to some other monetary good. The most important differentiator between one and another is scarcity. How difficult is it to make more of? Now think about why this is crucial, particularly if we are talking about money as an informational tool to authenticate, to verify value that we have created in the past and let's just use like a stupid simple example go back to our bob and nancy and chad thing so if there are 20 notes of a currency we will say it's a virtual currency already there are 20 notes of this currency that exist and we are a a tribe of 20 people and collectively we can each catch one fish per day and nothing else well then in a perfect world one of those monetary notes would equal one fish if there were no new notes. But what if you could create another note way easier than you could catch another fish? Or wouldn't you just make notes and buy other people's fish? I would. I would be like, why, why am I spending all this time fishing? I could just make a note and buy a fish. So I would stop fishing. And not only would there now suddenly be more notes, because every single day I would add a new note into circulation, but simultaneously, there are less fish. Because I stopped fishing. I stopped being a productive member of society until that point where the value of the money was low enough that it was now more work for me to produce maybe 50 notes per fish. So if me making 50 notes equals the amount of work it would take for me to catch one fish, that is the point where I finally go back to catching a fish when it costs 50 notes to buy a fish. And in the meantime, the money would completely fail 
at organizing our economic activity or storing what we did in the past into the future. Because saving one note while we have 20 notes, but where you know it might cost my neighbor a whole day of not eating in order to save one note. And they think in a month they're going to get one day's worth of food back. And that's why they starved themselves for a day. But then just a month later, it gets them less than a 50th of a fish, which might as well be no fish at all. And in fact, just keeping the fish and eating a rotten one after 30 days rather than saving the one note might have been the better option. Money has to be scarce for it to be a good accounting tool for value because value is scarce. It is inherently scarce. And as a collective accounting tool, for it to work reliably and actually coordinate resources across billions of separate participants, it has to be extremely difficult to create the accounting unit. If it's easy to create, it can't, it can't account for anything. It's the same reason that your house, if you budget in your house, it would be completely meaningless if at the end of the month you just throw in a bunch of points whenever you want to cover up the fact that, you know, you set half of your possessions on fire and you have got a big negative at the end of the month. Well, if you just, you know, get yourself a surplus, quote unquote, by just throwing a whole bunch of easy to create points onto your budget and you have positive numbers, what does that mean? What, what good does that do you? It's not an accounting tool anymore. It's just something to, you know, make yourself feel better. And a funny but kind of horrifying truth is this is what our government does. The economy destroys resources and goes deeply into debt by making things less efficient and being more wasteful. And when it turns out that there's a massive loss across the board, the government and the central bank literally just work together to cook the books to the orders of trillions of accounting points to make it look like everything's all hunky-dory. Oh, we got positives everywhere. Look how great it is. This, so this is like we're all in a plane together and we're in a nosedive headed toward a cliff. And whenever the market sends us screaming signals that we should be pulling up and the altimeter is going nuts showing us that we're in a nosedive, the government literally just breaks the gauge and pushes it back up to, to level, to normal, so that we can all rest easy on our way to our deaths. Fun, isn't it? That's how our monetary system works. Not even really an exaggeration. So let's actually look at another historical example of a money that emerged that proves the informational nature of money. And it is one of my favorite monetary goods in history. Yes, I am that much of a nerd that I have a favorite historical monetary good. It is the rye stones of the yap. And this is another great piece we have read on this show all about this. It was a relatively short summary, actually, by Milton Friedman. And there's a lot more that you can dig into about the Rye Stones and their history and stuff. But I will, I will make sure to look that one up in the library and have that link in the show notes as well. But the Rye Stones of the Yap. This is possibly the best allegory to Bitcoin that I think has ever existed. And I love it. And funny enough, it worked for centuries before it was both, both politically and technologically obsoleted. So the island of Yap, they used a dominant monetary good known as rye stones, R-A-I. These were huge limestone discs or wheels almost. Uh, so they're just giant discs that were massive, massive, heavy stones, stupidly difficult to move, and mostly they just sat around. But they were pretty and imposing, so they made for a good collectible. And they were obviously extremely durable. They're just a giant stone, so they lasted for generations and generations to store and pass down wealth. You can still go to the islands and see them sitting around. And of course, something... Uh, because they were so huge and heavy and because the limestone, the stone they were made out of, wasn't even native to the island, they were extremely difficult to create more of. Now, they weren't perfectly fungible because there were some bigger ones and some smaller ones, 
but it wasn't complicated enough to outweigh its other excellent monetary attributes, its scarcity, its durability, and interestingly enough, divisibility and portability, which you would think this specifically would not have those attributes, but it does, and we'll explain in just a second, because this money was almost completely transferred virtually. So how was this done? By telling everybody. So let's say I had a big old fat shiny rye stone at the top of the hill next to the town square, right? Everybody knows it's mine. Guy's stone is the best stone. You're all jealous. And I want to buy your farm. We agreed to do so because maybe you want the stone to pass down your generational wealth. You want to pass it down to your daughter who's getting married and you want them to have a long-term wealth to pass down to your next generations. So you want to make a trade. So what we, go is, what we do is we go down to the town square and basically announce to everyone and record with the local religious authority, the tribe leader, that I no longer own the rye stone on top of the hill. It's now your stone. It doesn't move. doesn't exchange hands. All it does is sit there as proof of value and proof that it is a scarce thing to transfer that we can go walk up the hill and verify. And exchange is done solely by consensus. Now, sometimes it did move. You know, obviously they had to get it there. Um, and this is actually why the, you know, the huge stone discs had a donut hole in them so that you could put like a big tree through it and uh, through the middle of it and then like roll them around with like 10 people together. But for the most part, this wasn't necessary. They just stayed put. For near five centuries, this was their culture's monetary good. And to really get a sense of what this was and how it worked and how this money operated and why it's such a good allegory to Bitcoin, there is a story from this island that just stuck with me because it illustrates so many things all at once. So the limestone was not prevalent on their island. They had to go acquire it, make the stone, and bring it back. So one of the wealthier members of society, of this society, took a boat and with the help of a bunch of other men, went to one of the neighboring islands, carved out a huge and particularly majestic one of these rye stones, hauled it back onto the boat, and then they returned to the island. But when they got back into port, they couldn't dock because there was a storm coming up and the seas were too rough. So they anchored out in the bay, hoping to make it past the storm. But the storm got bad enough that the boat capsized and sank to the bottom of the bay with the stone. All the men returned to the island, but they didn't have the rye stone. Yet, because the man explained what had happened, gave the whole story to the, you know, to the village and everyone, and that everyone on the boat, everyone who went with them, attested to the size and the beauty of the stone. And because they had no share in it themselves, no conflict of interest or reason to exaggerate their versions of the story, they let the stone enter into circulation on the island anyway. So instead of just the stone at the top of the hill or the stone by the beach, this was the stone at the bottom of the bay. And it was handed down for generations. Notice the important distinction here. The stone didn't have to even exist. As long as it shared the attributes that it couldn't easily be created into circulation, i.e. without the work, the attestation from the many independent auditors, the distant expedition to retrieve it, it would not have been allowed into circulation. The stone was merely a proof of work, and he was able to prove the work without the stone. As long as this was the case, it could continue to work as money, because in the end, it is merely a tool to translate value from the past into the future. Now, this leads me to an analogy that I like, I really like to ask people who demand that Bitcoin is backed by nothing, or that it's created arbitrarily, or you know, mostly this is kind of a gold bug thing, right, that They'll lean heavily on this claim that because there's no gold to redeem Bitcoin for, it can't be money. Um, so I like to think of a thought. I'd like to bring up a thought experiment. What if we had a paper currency that was 
perfectly backed by gold. And somehow this was 100% provable. There was no question that anyone in the world, for whatever reason, could counterfeit these notes. When you had one of these notes, you could easily look at it and know beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter who, what authority anywhere in the world said otherwise, that this one either was or was not backed by a piece of gold. And that these were all proofs of a single ounce of gold that had been locked away into one giant vault that was like a mile deep into the earth. But everybody just used the notes because they were as good as gold, right? No one ever redeemed them. They only used it to trade and hold value simply in the notes because you could so easily prove the notes. And it was so clear that the notes were representative of the gold. Well, then you didn't have to go all, you didn't want to go all the way down into the vault and, you know, tr- you know, open up the, you know, 1800 locks and complicated mechanisms and get out the gold and weigh it. And then you just got to you bring it all the way back up. And then j- later, you just got to trade it again for the notes because it's so hard to move the gold around. And it's easier to verify the note than it is to weigh and check the purity of the gold itself. Just so much hassle. So nobody did it. The notes were as good as gold. What would happen if the keys to the vault were lost? Or maybe there's a bomb that went off in the silo that was locking it away such that all of the gold was essentially irretrievable. Or better yet, the one, one day the gold literally just vanished, but nobody ever went down there. The gold simply wasn't there anymore. It was completely inaccessible, like the stone at the bottom of the bay. If no one ever opened up the safe to see, and the notes were still completely secure and provable, how long would the notes keep working? If they remain perfectly provable as part of the original set, could not be counterfeited, and even better, no bank or government in the world could even partially or even attempt to counterfeit or print them without them being somehow an obvious fake, when would it stop working? What would make it stop working? This is Bitcoin. It's got greater scarcity. It's got better scarcity than gold. It's near perfect ability to easily and cheaply verify its authenticity. It is bank and government counterfeit proof. It's fungible because it's literally money distilled down to its most essential form, an accounting unit. It is endlessly divisible because, again, it's an accounting unit. It cannot be created without massive amounts of provable work. It is literally in the name, proof of work. And none of them can be created out of a hard limit of 21 million. And best of all, it is digital and programmable, meaning it can be given instructions and ownership can be as varied as you would want. And this... Oh, this actually brings me back. There was a point about the Rhystones that I forgot to mention. I said that they were divisible. So virtual made them portable, right? Because I could trade you the one on top of the hill and all we got to do is yell. You're like, are you on the one on top of the hill? And everybody knows and now it's done. We portabled it. (laughs) That's not a word. Um, But I also said divisible. Well, let's say me, my wife, and my two sons each own a fourth of that Rhystone at the top of the hill. Because, you know, this was based on village consensus, right? Why do I need to own the whole stone? So if everybody's just keeping track of who owns what stone, maybe 20 people own my stone together. And we each have different proportions of it. And my wife could sell her quarter to somebody else in town. And then we'd have, you know, it's basically a weird form of multi-signature. We didn't have to own or trade the entire stone. We could just split up the ownership. Well, you can do the same thing in Bitcoin, except that you don't have to trust that, you know, some religious or local authority is going to enforce it when the time comes. It's based on cryptography. It's based on the fact that you know a cryptographic secret that nobody in the world could ever guess, given the greatest supercomputer ever built and enough time until the heat death of the universe to try it. Bitcoin unequivocally enforces the rightful owner. Bitcoin is not an app on your phone. It is not a cash app competitor. 
It's not a social network that's going to be replaced by something better that comes along. It is a fundamental protocol of digital value. It is far more akin to TCP IP and the internet itself than it is to World of Warcraft money. It is the first system ever to create, to, to be able to mimic the attributes of physically owning something in the real world where because you own it, because you have it in your possession, you are the owner. You have a bearer asset like a gold coin. That's never been possible in the digital space. If you had a JPEG, you didn't really have anything. You had something that a million other people could have, five other people could have, or everybody in the world could have. It was just a copy. There's actually no way to move a thing in digital space at all. The only option is to copy it and paste it. The only way to achieve the illusion of moving it is to delete the original copy so that it's the only copy is in the other place. It created a universal truth, a totem to coordinate everybody around who owns what without needing any authority at all. And in fact, by evicting any attempt at authority from the system in every way, it has perfect scarcity and value security like gold does that cannot be faked. It has the fungibility and divisibility of gold because it's just a digital point, but we are able to still retain the digital portability that you get from fiat, from paper and virtual dollars, and that also have the variety of uses and functions of the many different services and needs in a modern financial age when you write futures contracts, you have oracle betting based on real-world events, when you have time-based contracts, when you have shared ownership with multi-signature, and on and on and on. And it's the scarcity and verifiability that made the physical money so successful combined with the digital ease and versatility that made fiat replace it and become the predominant money in the modern era. It is the best of both combined and solves the largest gaping problem in fiat money today. This is why Bitcoin is emerging as money. This is exactly what it would look like. It would happen in wild swings as the information slowly spreads into the economy or the market, as the feedback loop of its completely inelastic supply like literally no coins, no new Bitcoin are created into circulation out of a strictly defined schedule that updates every 10 minutes. And demand, due to its price increases, continues to unfold. So understand everything about Bitcoin is defined and set in stone except its market price. The market price is the one thing that Bitcoin does not know or care about. So it perfectly responds to swings to its demand and the market sentiment, which is exactly what we need right now. That is why Bitcoin is so volatile. It is emerging as a money. Its total addressable market as a monetary good is massive, and the supply cannot either increase or decrease in order to smooth any of that movement out. It is real prices. It's real reactions to the market in real time, and it is global, so there's no one market that uh, dominates it in any way, shape, or form. And this is desperately what we need to get off the plane that's heading into the cliff so that we can get on a rocket ship that clearly indicates that when we should pull up and get the plane back in the air so that everybody doesn't die. Right now, we are on a sinking ship because we do not have real prices. What we need more than anything is real prices, and Bitcoin gives that to us. And remember, at the end of the day, all of this is, a, is about a tool to allocate human time, to allocate and coordinate value across time. And there's a piece we just read recently on the show that is so good for this one, Bitcoin is Time by Dergigi. It also helps to explain why just a general idea of why all resources can be boiled down to time. Everything else is kind of just a layer on top of the time cost of accomplishing something. It is the universal constant that all of our goals, all of our dreams, all of our production requires. Talent, labor, 
innovation, all of this is just a derivative of how it affects the time cost. And it also, this piece, uh, Bitcoin is Time, also beautifully illustrates why Bitcoin's ultimate and revolutionary purpose is as a coordination mechanism. It is a way to create a universal economic order of events, a sense of time that no single party can manipulate and that keeps a record of monetary history. And therefore, every party, every trading party can independently trust this totem. And therefore, any other potential differences or jurisdictional differences or property rights differences or religious differences or racial differences, whatever it is, do not have to come into, come into play. You can still trade based on the value totem that they, the, the same language of value that they speak. It is a way to create a sense of time in financial events that has no master. And just like it's stupid and inefficient for everybody to have their own version of a clock that has their own time system, like I have 60 seconds to a minute and you have 193 seconds to a minute, we use the same, right? We use the same coordination system to coordinate tasks and economic activity all around the world. We all basically use the same clock. And it makes no sense to have a huge number of various arbitrarily different clocks. Well, it doesn't make any sense to have a ton of various arbitrarily different floating monetary goods either. The same reason why a single dominant money is better than a bunch of different monetary goods is literally the same reason why having a money at all is so much better than barter. And this is a basic truism of networks, of communication systems in general. Another great piece on this uh, that I'd recommend is on network effects, shelling points and Lindy are on shelling points. It's something like that. I'll look it up and get the actual title. It's, I can't remember what the order is exactly, but it's by Willem Vandenberg. Um, and, it, and it really breaks down the key concepts of what we know about communication protocols, about network effects, and uh, communication mediums, and why they always tend to consolidate toward one. Why it seems that Whereas, you know, having like random electronics devices or whatever, we'll have hundreds of different devices or cars. We'll have hundreds of different cars, different shapes, sizes, and all sorts of stuff carrying different various numbers of people and all this stuff. But somehow the rules of the road are the same for all the cars. Um, and then same with the phones is we have all these different smartphones. We've got big screens. We've got little screens. We've got iPads. We've got laptops, blah, blah, blah. But they all speak the same internet. What is it? Why is it that some products, some things within the market have this tendency to explode in variety and serve all of these varying different purposes, but then these underlying communication systems, these foundations for communication, why do they consolidate onto one? Why don't they seem to benefit from this huge degree of variance in competition? Uh, so that's a really, really great piece on that concept if you want to dig a little bit deeper. But it, it kind of digs into the idea, and this is so crucial to, the, to understanding Bitcoin. And it's the reason, it's the same reason why we don't choose, you know, which of the five different internets we're going to connect to. We all log into the internet. There's a reason why TCP IP, the underlying protocol stack for the internet, has not changed since the late 70s. It's 50-year-old technology, despite the endless amount of innovation and layers built on top of it. And that same reason that those are two both true is why it is extremely likely to have a single dominant monetary foundations with thousands of layers, payment systems, apps, and financial services built on top of it. So I'll have... All of these links, if you want to dig a little bit deeper in the show notes, this episode was just the tip of the iceberg. There's about a thousand hours of history, economics, game theory, delving further into why money exists in the first place, what happens when you see monies compete with each other, the nature of Bitcoin emerging into the monetary atmosphere and the consequences of that, and what it would look like. If it did look like a new, perfectly scarce money was monetizing from zero and succeeding beyond anyone's wildest expectations. You can find those in the show notes, all those the articles and videos and stuff I mentioned. 
uh, in the show notes, either in your podcast app or just at bitcoinaudible.com and search it right there in the library. Okay, so today's Bitcoin resource is the Breeze Wallet, B-R-E-E-Z. So drop the last E and you can check it out at breeze.technology. This is not a sponsor of the show. This is just one of my absolute favorite Lightning wallets. So Lightning, I'm sure most of you know, but just in case, Lightning is a payments protocol on top of it. So think of like www, like the web was built on top of TCP IP to make the internet. Well, the Lightning Network is a payment system on top of Bitcoin that has instant, fast, and massively scalable payments to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. And Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z, is absolutely one of my favorite non-custodial wallets. So you're holding your own keys and running your own little Lightning instance. And it just works. And I absolutely love this thing. I swear by it. I use it all the time. So if you're looking to get into Bitcoin, I highly recommend that wallet. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Bitcoin Audible. Thank you so much for joining me. There is so much more to learn and so much more to explore and so much happening in this space right now. We are epic winning uh, recently, so stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. I am Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. They aren't that other region. We're our region. <laughs>